0: This evening we turn in God's inspired word to the New Testament, Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness, unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The text to which I call your attention this evening is Romans 6, verse 22. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. The text that we consider this evening, beloved, is an intricate part of the context that precedes it. And within that context, it also serves as an excellent and necessary instruction by way of application to the gospel signified and sealed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. The Apostle considers here in this sixth chapter of Romans the impression that Christ has upon the daily life of all who are in Him by faith. In other words, he unfolds here the truth of sanctification. Those who are in Christ do not continue in sin that grace may abound. The very thought is appalling. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And notice, the apostle doesn't speak about sin being dead. Sin is very much alive, as you well know. We who are Christians have a constant battle against that sin in us. But we who are now alive in Christ are dead to sin. Sin no longer holds us in the power of its death. We are dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore the call comes to us, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. That call is effective in those who believe. But the grace of God does not leave us only with a command, but supplies us, with the reason for obeying it willingly and in great joy. The call to holiness is supported by that which is set forth in verses 20 and following. The apostle does not just say superficially, look look to the Lord and abide in Him. He says, use your mind. Consider your life. Who are you? In Christ Jesus, when temptation comes, look at that old life of sin from which Christ saved you and analyze it and ask the question, what is this temptation? Where is this leading me? How can I continue in sin when it means a life without profit, full of shame and guilt and darkness. How can I continue in sin when I know it always leads to death? Should this appeal to me at all? God forbid. How can I, who have been purchased by Christ's precious blood, live a useless life? A life without fruit to the glory of God, a life that would end in everlasting separation from God. That's impossible. If Christ has made us members of His body, purchased us with His precious blood, and freed us from bondage by His resurrection from the dead. And with that being established in verses 20 and 21, Paul proceeds to a more positive perspective in verse 22. We have before us really a thrilling depiction of what it means to be in Christ. That is, to be in Christ, such as we have confessed in partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. To be in Christ is to be fruitful servants to God. I take that as my theme this evening, fruitful servants to God. We notice, first of all, a profound change. Secondly, a liberating enslavement. And finally, an increasing conformity to the image of God's dear Son. The Christian is a person who has undergone a profound change. Essential Christianity is seen in the contrast of verse 22 with the previous verses, the two previous verses. That's a contrast not merely in theory, but in your life and mind who believe. Notice the change set forth in these verses. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. That is, you were outside its realm. You were unrighteous. But now, you see, a complete transformation has taken place. You were this and that, But now you have become servants, slaves to God. Which means you now belong to God in righteousness. Or verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Paul doesn't answer that. The answer is obvious. What fruit did you have in the bondage to whatever sin held you? No no fruit whatsoever. No positive fruit. Nothing. But now you have your fruit. Fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And this isn't the only place where that contrast is set forth and so starkly painted In Scripture, the Apostle repeatedly calls attention to that truth, not only in this profoundly doctrinal section of of his letter to the Christians in Rome, but also in his other epistles. So within this chapter, that contrast is set forth in verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. You find the same truth beautifully expressed in Ephesians 2, the first six verses. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past Ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And to call attention to only one other passage, In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, we read, And such were some of you. That is, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Apostle never tires of repeating the wonder of the Gospel and the power of Jesus Christ, and the Christian doesn't tire of hearing those things either. This is indeed the good news of the gospel. No one but a Christian can say, but now there are those who are caught in the snares of particular sin say, for example, drug abuse or alcohol abuse, who are rehabilitated. And they put away those particular addictions, and yet they undergo no essential change. What a pity. But how beautiful a manifestation of the power of the gospel as I've seen on several occasions, when God grips the soul of His child and makes that child a new person in Christ, apart from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, a man might change his friends, might change his pleasures, might change his sins, but he remains the same man dead in trespasses and sins, though manifesting that death in a different way from before. But the Christian's life is not the same as before. When Christ comes in, He makes all things new. He works a dividing line between the then and the now. You were, you are. Do you glory in this but now, beloved? Is that the gospel you received at the Lord's table this morning? If we are living out of faith, we cannot consider these words without being moved to the depths of our souls. We worship. We praise our God. We, we must shout, but now! Because that, little, that change, that change is not a slight modification. A little alteration in our lives. A different addiction. Then and now are complete contrasts. The Apostle's whole point here is that we cannot possibly go on living as if we're not children of God. And the reason is also evident from the text. When we are truly members of Christ by faith, the Sovereign and Almighty Savior is at work in us. That change is not something that we decided to affect. We don't bring about this great change by a decision of our own will. The teaching of Scripture is clear. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? We who are dead in trespasses and sins, held in bondage, don't suddenly make ourselves alive and free ourselves from from those humanly unbreakable bonds. We're not some kind of supermen and superwomen. All this change is wrought by the Spirit of God in us. Notice the passive language that the Apostle uses here. He's under the accurate inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God. And literally, the rendering is even stronger. Having been freed and having been enslaved to God. That's passive. That's God's work. It's not something we have done. It is something that has been done to us. We are His workmanship. It is God who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. It's His action, His wonderful work. God regenerates us. He creates us anew. And what a magnificent work is that work of salvation wrought by God in us who are chosen, His chosen people in Christ. The real nature of this change is seen in this text in the words, being made free from sin. We have been freed from sin. I emphasize again that's something already true of us according to the words of this text. The Apostle is not saying here, if you do certain things, you will be set free. He's not saying it is possible for you to be set free if only you walk in this way. He's speaking of a freedom that belongs by definition to all who are Christians. You cannot be a Christian except it be said of you that you have been made free from sin. Now, we have to consider yet what that means. But the clear teaching of the text is, this is true for all you who are in Christ Jesus. The Christian is one with Christ. Having died with Him, having been buried with Him, having risen with Him, being alive unto God in Him, we must never lose sight of that. We have been set free. What is meant by that freedom? That we are free from sin means that we are no longer under its tyranny. No longer bound within its prison walls. We're entirely set free from the bondage of sin and death by our Lord Jesus Christ. That we have been made free from sin means not only that we are justified and free from the guilt of sin, but that we are entirely outside its realm and jurisdiction. We have forever left its rule and its territory. Whereas once we were in bondage to sin, just as if we had been imprisoned behind the walls and rolls of barbed wire outside a maximum security prison, We now are free. We are outside its walls, completely out of the rule and territory of the warden. Does this mean then that the text teaches perfectionism? Not at all. Read on a little farther, and you will find developed in the next chapter, Romans 7, another truth that runs throughout Scripture. Namely, that we have a continual struggle and a battle to fight against sin so long as we are on this earth and in this body. Though we are dead to sin, according to Romans 6 verse 2, the sin, that sin is still very much alive in our mortal body and in our, the members of our old man and though sin cannot hold us under in bondage, it is very well possible that it reigns in our sinful flesh. That's why we are admonished in this very chapter, Romans 6, verses 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that she should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I am as much saved today as I shall be in glory. But I am not perfect as I shall be there. My body is still the body of my humiliation. It's my sinful body, it's not yet my glorified body. That awaits me in heaven until Christ returns. But with reference to the text that we are considering, I would dare put it this way sin is no longer our master. It is rather a nuisance, an annoyance. In one who's not in Christ, sin is Lord. Sin controls. Sin is master. The Christian, however, has been freed from that tyranny. The Christian is now in the position to hear the words of James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can't say that to an unbeliever. To one who's outside of Christ? The non-Christian cannot resist the devil. The devil is his master. The natural man is under the power and dominion of sin and Satan. But the Christian can resist the devil so that the devil will flee. Though he be your adversary, who as a roaring lion seeks to devour you, you can resist him steadfast in the faith and defeat him and cause him to disappear. That's what we read in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. John writes, In 1 John 5, verse 19, the whole world lieth in wickedness. But we are of God. And he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. He can frighten us. He can entice us. He can shout at us. But that devil cannot touch us. We're out of his territory. We've been freed from sin. That's the most liberating truth Scripture sets before us. And with that truth as the basis, Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. But no longer enslaved to sin and Satan, we are yet enslaved with what I refer to as a liberating enslavement. we become servants to God. Those who say that Jesus came to bring equality and to destroy every form of servitude, they don't know their Bibles. Jesus came to make us slaves. Slaves to God. We belong to a new master. Members of a new kingdom. We've been purchased by the Lord of Lords. As slaves were bought from one master and became the property of another, so we belong to God as purchased by the blood of Christ. And that's what we celebrated and commemorated in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. The Apostle simply reminds us here that as Christians, we belong to God. We belong to God. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Don't forget your confession in Lord's Day 1 of our Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own. But I belong in body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I speak of a liberating enslavement, I understand well that on the surface that sounds like a contradiction in terms. But to be a slave unto God is exactly the freedom of being a Christian. And in fact, the only freedom there is. The Christian is not a slave to the law. The Christian is not a slave to the church. Not a slave under oppression. He's a slave to God but he's a slave to God willingly. The Apostle writes in verse 17, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. In that way, we are indeed enslaved to God. That's not only a most blessed truth in the realm of Christian doctrine, that's the secret of holiness, of walking in sanctification. In other words, the teaching here and the consequence of being freed from sin is that we have no right to live unto ourselves. No right to live unto ourselves. You have no right to serve self. And that means we have no right to sin. Descend means that we're doing something that our master disapproves of and hates. And as slaves to God, we're called to serve him and to glorify him. What is our great calling as servants of the living God? We hear it every Sunday morning, don't we? In the summary of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. We serve a totalitarian master. He demands our everything. But when we understand our relationship to Him, and that mighty work of grace that He performed, and the cost He paid to take us into His own family. It's not only our Master, let's remember. He's our Father in Heaven. Then we willingly strive to glorify Him in all things too so we are called to think on Him. If by faith we focused our thoughts on God as our faithful Father and Lord and of our consequent calling to serve Him, instead of thinking so much about ourselves and our problems and what we want and our difficulties and so on, our whole attitude, And lifestyle would be changed. We would come more and more under the power of that liberty with which Christ has made us free. We must be reminded that we are slaves to God, to our Father, for Christ's sake. Your business is to know what He would have you do. That's the reason He bought you. That's how the Apostle preaches sanctification, living in holiness. Sanctification is not some sentimental teaching which offers some great feeling, some unique Christian experience. It's an exhortation. Remember who you are, Christian. Remember who you are. Remember your relationship to your Heavenly Father. In whatever we do and whatever we face, we are to remember that we are absolutely His and are to live to Him. You've been set free from that old slavery. You're now a slave to God. Live realizing who your Master is. What is holiness? It's to be like Christ who came not to do His own will, but the will of Him that sent Him. Willingly enslaved to God. That was Christ. That's also us who are in Christ. Remember again your confession in Lord's Day 1. I'm not my own. I belong in body and soul. To my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? Do you realize that your body is Christ's? Young people, do you realize that? Do you realize that your whole life is Christ? You live your life. Christ's blood running down your arm. Can't shake it off. Wherever you go, you belong to Christ. Remember that. Remember who you are. You have no right to abuse your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have no right to use your body to serve your selfish lusts or your selfish interests. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Gospel proclamation of sanctification is to bring us to realize we've been set free Free to serve God within our new enslavement to Him. Christ entered the battle, conquered the devil, set us free from Satan's tyranny. That was the love of God for us, beloved. And therefore also nothing shall separate us from that love. As slaves to God, we can never be taken back into the bondage of our old slavery. God doesn't allow His purchased treasures to be taken from Him. He purchased us that we might serve Him forever. What an encouragement that must be to us in our daily walk as as the servants of God. But understanding that profound change and the liberating enslavement that is ours in Christ Jesus, we are brought to the last part of the text which shows us that the Christian life is a life of increasing conformity to the image of God's dear Son. As slaves to God, free from sin, we have our fruit unto holiness Again, there is here an immediate contrast to our old life. What fruit had ye then? In those things whereof ye are now ashamed. But as Christians, we produce fruit. Fruit is something that's seen. The term indicates that holiness to the Lord is manifest in our lives. The purpose unto which God created us is manifest in us. As we read in Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let us never forget that the fruit of grace in us is exactly the result of our changed condition. You cannot produce fruit unto holiness without being freed from sin and enslaved to God. To put it another way, if there are no fruit seen in you, no godly sorrow of repentance for your sin, no striving to walk in holiness before God, no desire to hear His voice and to come to Him in the willingness to serve Him, you can only come to the conclusion that you are living apart from Christ and are in bondage to sin and death. May God have mercy on you if that is your life here below. It is impossible to produce this fruit without being born again. The Lord Jesus states that clearly more than once during His earthly ministry. In the so-called Sermon on the Mount, He said as recorded in Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, He shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruit ye shall know them. The nature of the tree, you notice, determines the fruit. It's impossible to produce fruits unto holiness unless the great work of regeneration has taken place in us under the power of the Holy Spirit. The same truth is expressed in John 15, where Jesus says in the first five verses of that chapter, I am the true vine and my Father is the husbandman. no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. That's true of every Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not bear fruit. That's not my opinion. That's the very Word of Christ. So the Apostle also puts it in that section that I referred to earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. You might think, Lord, Lord, have I not done wonderful things? Have I not gone to church all my life? Have not I partaken of the Lord's Supper? Confessed faith? But if there is no fruit unto holiness in your life, you have nothing more than a form of religion, not true Christianity. Faith without works is dead. James 2, verse 26. Holiness is the certain fruit of the Christian because of the life of Christ coursing through our spiritual veins. The essential thing about holiness is that we are devoted to God. The truth of holiness is pictured in the holy vessels of the temple in the Old Testament. They were called holy because they were set apart for the service of God. Men couldn't drink out of them as a common instrument. They were holy vessels unto God, sanctified, set apart for His service. So we are set apart, devoted to the service and glory of our God. Holiness, therefore, is not a mere feeling. It's not an experience. It's a spirit-worked devotion, dedication to our Father's will and service. That we have fruit unto holiness implies that more and more our fruitfulness is in the direction of holiness. In the service of sin, we had no good fruit. But now we bear fruit unto holiness There's growth in grace. Growth in that tree that bears fruit. That growth is never the self-improvement that people like to speak about today. That fruit is the great gift of God's grace given us by Jesus Christ, worked by His Holy Spirit, having fruit unto holiness, We grow in our knowledge of our own sin, our hatred of sin, in godly sorrow for our faults, in our eagerness to cling to Christ for our salvation and our life. But having fruit unto holiness also means that more and more we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Having fruit unto holiness means that we obey His commandments and show ourselves more and more as those whose religion is pure and undefiled. And James writes in James 1 verse 27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The Christian matures. The Christian grows. The Christian becomes increasingly conformed to the image of God's dear Son. And those who so walk are assured that they await life everlasting. Because the end of such a servanthood unto God is life everlasting. The God-appointed fruit of this God-wrought work in us is life everlasting, where we shall have perfect knowledge with our God knowing Him, even as we are known. That's what we sing and did this morning from that beautiful versification of Psalm 116. Jerusalem. Within thy courts I'll praise Jehovah's name, and with a spirit lowly pay all my vows, O Zion, fair and holy, come join with me and bless him all thy days. May that be your life, your hope, your encouragement in this battle of faith that is ours as God's people in Christ Jesus. Amen. Gracious Father, we give thanks to Thee for that wonderful contrast Thou hast worked in our lives between the but then and now. We thank Thee that Thou hast made us free from sin and made us Thy servants, instilling in us that faith, that trusts in Thee, that longs to serve Thee, that loves Thee, because Thou hast first loved us. Guide us, we pray. Draw us unto Thee by Thy Word and Spirit, Strengthen us also in the week that lies before us for Jesus' sake. Amen.